Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We'll be on with Steve Whiting today. He's the global chief strategist at City Private Bank, and he's here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. It feels like it's been an age, Steve. It's been a while. Great to see you once again. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, about uh, tax reform. As we watch this process uh, unfold, I mentioned the delay, uh, the one-day at least delay that we've gotten from the House Ways and Means Committee. How closely are you watching this? How closely are markets watching what's unfolding here? It's an incredibly tight uh, timeline, a very narrow calendar, very narrow window for lawmakers to get something done here by the end of the calendar year. Well, I'm watching it very closely. I think that markets all year long have been tempted to think that something was imminent, it's going to happen quickly, it's this vote or that vote, and they don't really have the patience to stay on this particular issue in the legislative process. Uh, If it turns out to be early 2018, uh, I would think that the probability of something passing is quite high. And markets can actually focus on other things if if for some reason there's a delay for a couple of weeks. But it is material. I mean, there's a lot of uh, devil in the details here. I just took a look. For example, if you were to take a look at the original Trump campaign uh, headlines, you're going to get a lot of those. Uh, But they seem to be with a $1.5 trillion price tag. 70% or more offset uh, by offsetting revenues, which is what the really interesting details, you know, we'll see where all those uh, other taxes have to go up in order to pay for this. Uh, That part uh, we'll hopefully learn tomorrow. Devils in the details, of course. How about on the issue of growth? We hear from members of this administration, from economic advisors to it. Uh, that uh, tax reform would lead to more growth. We'd get to that 3 4% range that uh, they've been talking about since the, the campaign. Any indications of that as you look at, uh, at the data? I think that there are subtle positives here. If you take a look at the corporate tax rate, just having a globally competitive corporate tax rate will mean a difference. Now, of course, there's some revenue loss for that, but we only collect about 10% uh, of all uh, federal uh, taxes are come from the corporate sector. And so, in essence, if you can have a more globally competitive tax rate, uh, you can incentivize domestic production. Now, that'll be a subtle but positive shift up. And then you have the the other issues here that do, are we really cutting down on all the complexity or are we really raising enough revenue uh, on these other issues if it's really just a tax cut or a reform? Uh, but, you know, I would not expect suddenly the economy has this tremendous new technological potential to to grow. The population will grow more rapidly. You know, it's subtle, but it could be it could be in the direction, a more positive direction. You write about bull market psychology and the degree to which it's spreading around the world. What are you seeing there? How, how uh, unwilling are investors to, to reckon with? Uh, central bank policy, political risk, uh, are they squarely focused here on what we're seeing as a, a, a rising, still rising stock market? Well, just think about Catalonia versus Greece some years ago. And again, you know, the financial uh, ramifications are very, very different. But the impact in market is so tremendously different. You know, we worried t- uh, in 2010 whether the, you know, the horrible earthquake in Fukushima was going to derail the world economy. That's how, how everyone felt so incredibly fragile about everything. And now what you see with North Korea has had no more impact than flammable smartphones. Right. So these these types of things uh, show that markets feel as if there's a durability and that means that they're taking more risk and that future returns will be reduced because we're taking more risk right now. But I I think it is more correct than incorrect that when we have problems, they tend to be regional and that most recessions are, in fact, regional. And if you diversify across the world, you can uh, 
you can actually take down risk. That's one of the few things we can do to mitigate risk. Stephen Whiting with us with City Private Bank getting us started here in this hour of Fed Day. David Gura providing wisdom in the one hour on Bloomberg Television, then I'll wander in on radio and television uh, with the Fed show. Scarlett Fu leading our coverage with Alan Blinder and Bill Gross and Jeff Rosenberg with us as well. All the tax reform dynamic runs up against all the mail I get from listeners, <laughs> which is 99% about the fiscal deficit. Mm. I believe tax reform is really about cutting taxes so far in the discussion I've heard. When does the deficit impinge on the markets? Impinge on the markets. These are another thing that could be quite subtle because the deficit does indeed matter to, independently of the interest rate level. But this is how we use savings now in the future. You know, what will we pay for and what will we give up? You know, right now we certainly have a surplus of savings where you can see interest rates you're pointing uh, earlier on the air to the cost of, you know, capital for Apple and the debt market, for yeah, example. Yeah, but our savings rate is what, 3.1% or something? The personal done? savings rate's yeah. in the neighborhood of 5%. That high up. Yeah. The national savings is higher. Uh, federal obviously have dis-savings. And in the long run, it will get worse. And, you know, what will we do? Well, we will finance uh, a good deal of uh, health care consumption or will we finance plant and equipment? And that's a question of, of what the deficit is doing and that it is that the Treasury will get financed, that we will be able to borrow and spend. But what will we be giving up uh, if we don't have an endless supply of savings in real savings, uh, inflation adjusted savings? And that's the question as to how uh, we use capital. Steve, you talked about the need to, to diversify internationally. How, how broadly does one do that, or how broadly would you counsel one, one to do that? Is it targeting one market in particular, one sector in one market? How, how broad a brush do you use when you, when you talk about uh, the international diversification? Well, I'm a little worried when, you know, for example, we're now overweight all emerging markets uh, regionally, and that's in both equities and fixed income. We spent most of the last five years underweight instead. Now, when we do that, People will say, well, I bought this one emerging market country ETF or something like that, and it didn't work. Well, the reality is, is that there's a lot of idiosyncratic country level risk, and you need to be careful. Things that look quite good uh, have idiosyncratic risks. If you take a look at uh, fixed income yeah, give, in Brazil, for example. Give us, a, give us a plus and a minus on idiosyncratic risk. Well, think about the elections of 2018 that are coming in the case of Mexico and Brazil. These are markets where uh, yields are tremendous compared to what you see in developed markets. Uh, in the case of Brazil, you also have a good equity valuation. But could you say that I put those into a portfolio of other emerging markets and I would probably have a good high expected return? Yes. Can you say that if I concentrate solely in that country and something goes wrong on the political front, then you have a problem. So that's why we need broadly diversified global portfolios. Uh, and if we have an emerging markets overweight, it's not the entire portfolio. When, when, you, when you look at uh, Asia in particular, and we've heard so much about trade, uh, and we're looking to the president heading over to Asia at the end of this uh, this week, uh, has that risk ebbed or subsided a bit? Uh, do you have a better sense here of what trade policy is likely to be? Is it, is it as big a risk factor as it was? Well, I think the notion that some had at the beginning of 2017 that if you can't make it in the United States, you can't buy it. That whole risk has diminished. Now, it, it has fallen uh, in terms of how the markets rate 
that political risk. You can see how the Mexican peso has risen pretty tremendously, and suddenly there's a little bit more risk there. So I think that markets are coming around and could could face another relapse and concern about that. I think the issue of Asia, though, is that there's a greater durability in Asia than many investors believe. Hmm. I just spent uh, a week in Shanghai a couple weeks back, and it is amazing how differently investors there feel about uh, China than Western investors do. You know, we've had declines in corporate debt in China since 2016. Where do, where do you read about that? You've seen large declines yeah. in capacity uh, in industries that have, uh, you know, problems with overcapacity. Yeah. You know, where do you read about that? Those are the things that I think are underappreciated right now, particularly about China. We treasure our guests and we particularly treasure them for their proclivities, their oddities, their focus and weirdness within the game of economics, <laughs> finance, and investment. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So yeah, if you're right. speaking with Stephen Whiting of City Private Bank, and he has an intellectual skill to talk on eight, nine, ten things at once, it always comes back to corporate profits and their link into the economy. And that means investment dynamics. Right. Consumption, 69.5% now of GDP. Do you, do you know, Stunning. by the way, that the whole Medicare system is consumption, is consumer spending? Yeah. That essentially all government health care benefits, anything that goes sort of into goes, consumption. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's one of these things that sort of folks don't want to always, you know, trot out 70%. No. <laughs> I'm going to put a chart out here on Twitter for Bloomberg Radio, which will feature over the next coming days that goes to that. Investment is the partial differential. It's the dynamics of GDP. Are we at a subpar GDP simply because we can't get investment going? Over the last several years, it's been across the board moderation in terms of the pace of growth. When I say moderation, I don't want to say, you know, it lacks volatility. That'll lead to another conversation. But consumption has not been powerful. Income dynamics have not been powerful and investment have all been on the slow side. We're seeing a bit of a pickup now, and I think the question, I should probably spend a bit more time on this myself, is to the extent that the energy boom and bust, the one thing that boomed in the U.S. economy last several years has been energy-related investment, then it went bust, and now it's coming back. Uh, To what extent is that contributing to the rebound that we're seeing in investment? But we are seeing stronger investment now than we've seen for a very long period of time. Ideally, it's more broad-based than just energy. We're looking at a, the conclusion of a Fed meeting today. Tomorrow, we're likely to hear from the president who has picked to, to head the Fed is going to, to be. Tell us a bit about how you, from investing perspective, see Jerome Powell, the gentleman who's uh, reportedly in the, the running to get that job. Right. Uh, you've written about him being sort of a benign, predictable, uh, maybe not guy, but uh, in terms of policy choice. What do we know about him and what might that mean for markets? I think we said something about, uh, you know, the principal teaching in art class. You get these p- people who are really passionate good, about yeah. monetary policy. And, and you know, you obviously the Car- Kevin Warsh, for example. So this is uh, an environment where the marketplace probably overreacts some to the practical impact of the choice of Fed share, that it is a committee, that the institution is very powerful. Um, I've never served uh, in the Federal Reserve System, so, you know, others can speak to this much better. But the idea here is that in the very short term, when it comes to uh, confidence and clarity about monetary policy, how market participants feel they can forecast the Fed, 
staying with someone who is part of uh, the Yellen Fed uh, and has laid out conditions for uh, unwinding monetary accommodation the way Jerome Powell has, it seems much more predictable. Uh, than going to an outsider right now. Greg Vallier of Horizon Investments writing this morning in his note about Janet Yellen, likely not to be a, a Fed chair for another term, saying uh, she'll go out on top, widely praised for engineering an economic recovery and presiding over a historic stock market rally. Lucky Janet Yellen getting out uh, just in time. How much are things going to change here? When you look at what she's set up, what this committee has, has set up, how, how likely is it to change under the leadership of somebody else? Well, if it is uh, Jay Powell, uh, I do think that monetary policy is not going to be you know, the driving force that uh, changes the whole economic outlook. Uh, you know, I think there are many economists who go out and say, well, you know, the Federal Reserve and monetary tightening, all the recessions are about that. Only if we just, it would almost give you the notion that if you stayed easy forever, you'd never have a downturn. And I think that that, you know, is a, a real mistake, that the imbalances that you can build in an economy by having monetary policy offsides or otherwise, um, irrational exuberance, these sorts of things, whether, but it has to be, I think, real side as well is financial. When you get that, I think you can have downturns. Mm. And, and clearly what you saw in 08, which I don't think has to happen again mm. in any by any means, you know, these are things that were not well predicted by the stance of monetary policy alone. I just came up with a phrase. I'm not saying it's original, but it goes back to the military industrial complex of the 50s. Is there such a thing as the medical industrial complex? Mm. When you look at the hybridization of government and investment, Combine them all in where medicine has just become the beast of all of our dynamics, our GDP dynamics? Well, that is, it is the secular grower. And the United States just stands out, though. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. this is a problem for yeah. us because, you know, a good deal um, of our health care is sort of like a stock option going into the money when you turn 65. Yeah. You know, the Medicare system covers those. And outside the United States, people, if they have uh, government health care programs, you know, they're covered for the entirety of their life. So there's not this massive kink up in expenditures that occur like that. But, you know, around the world, one of the interesting things to, to note is that health care expenditures are less cyclical than income. Most, you know, things go yeah. up and down even more than income, and health care only goes okay. up. Okay. Steve Whiting, brilliant. Thank you so much. He is with Citi, private bank, our global uh, chief investment strategist. Futures up 11. Dow futures up a big 135. The VIX 9.86. This is Bloomberg. This is an honor. What we, we are humbled by the guests we have and their perspective. Frederick Mishkin is at Columbia. You've heard me rave about his textbook, which is policy-driven, particularly the back uh, half of it. He holds court at Columbia and darkened the door of the Eccles building years ago as a Fed governor. Uh, Rick, in 1990, a few years ago, uh, you wrote a chapter in Crashes and Panics in Historical Perspective. Comment on who put the mania in tulip mania and this goes to the this goes to the idea of asset bubbles are we bubblicious now have we skewed things to such a manner that we have a mania within our financial systems well i think you have to be very careful in terms of thinking about two different kinds of bubbles and one is very dangerous and one much less so so asset prices do wild and crazy things, and uh, who knows whether, in fact, the stock market is too high right now. Uh, this is something that economists have a really hard time 
uh, predicting or even explaining even after the fact. Uh, but uh, currently, uh, the stock market may be very high, but we're not seeing excessive risk-taking uh, uh, risk in terms of credit markets. And that's really very, very different. We get many bubbles, which are the ones that are very dangerous, which, like the one we had preceding the uh, this global financial crisis we had recently, where, in fact, there's a huge increase in asset prices, but they're fueled by credit. And if they're fueled by credit, when they have asset bubble bursts, now you have a contraction of credit, and that destroys the economy. And that's what happened uh, in, this, in this recent episode. That's not what we see going on now. And we've had many cases where the stock market has gone way up. It sometimes crashes. Think about the tech bubble um, in, in the early 2000s. That crashed, and the economy had very little impact from it. So I think the key issue is not that we need, uh, need to predict what's going to happen to asset prices. If I could do that, I, could, I would own Bloomberg. Uh, on the other hand, uh, 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 I'm oh. not that good. And so, uh, but on the other hand, I, uh, we can tell whether a very high asset price are associated with a lot of risky credit taking. And in that case, we've got to get very nervous and we have to do something about it. That's not the situation yep. now, but that's one of the lessons we learned from the last crisis. Uh, Rick, let me ask you about the evolution of rules-basedness. Uh, I gather you were at the, uh, the the Boston Fed conference a couple of weeks back when John Taylor spoke about his rule in a new broader context of, uh, you know, not being in, so slave. Go ahead. Yes, in fact, by the way, he led he he led off the conference, and I was the counter, and I <laughs> finished the conference. <laughs> well, I just I, I wonder what you made of what he had to say. Uh, the, the the fact that uh, he suggested there could be some discretion infused with that rule that could be used uh, in tandem. Are we seeing an evolution in the way that we approach rules based monetary policy? You know, it's hard to say uh, that I think if John was actually put in the position of being Fed chair, uh, he'd be more flexible. But that's really not what what uh, what he said. He he. He actually talked about the, the fact that, that uh, the kind of discretion that uh, uh, Ben Bernanke and the Fed used uh, was way, way uh, too much. And in fact, I think he mischaracterized uh, what happened during that period. Uh, I would describe the, the operation under the Bernanke Fed as very rule-like. The key thing that Ben Bernanke emphasized was that he wanted to anchor inflation expectations. One of the huge successes of that period is, in this case, he anchored inflation expectations so they didn't fall. So remember, at one point, we actually had a huge negative shock. We actually had deflation for a very brief period of time, but it was very temporary. The fact it was so temporary that inflation expectations stayed around 2%, that's very rule-like. That's looking to the future. That's exactly the great success of the, of the Federal Reserve, and I think that, that, uh, that John just doesn't get that. And, in fact, I called him out on that in the conference. <laughs> and how did he Fireworks respond? Fireworks on Atlantic How did he Ave, respond? Yes. Well, he responded that uh, he disagreed with me, but that's, you know, uh, uh, one thing about economists. John's a, a wonderful person, okay, by the way. Yeah, but, one but, thing about economists is we love to disagree. I, I but agree. I, but I, I do have very formal, I have very strong disagreements uh, with okay. John's views, very strong disagreements <clears throat> with the bill that he has helped uh, 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 encourage through Congress, which actually requires okay. the Fed to have a directive policy. Rule. This is incredibly important. Because of time, Professor Mishkin, we've got to cut to the chase. Are we going to have these debates and discussions if we have a non-PhD economist running uh -huh. the Fed? 
think the answer is these debates and discussions will always take place. Uh, that there are some very strong reasons why rules have advantages, and also some strong reasons why pure discretion, which is not what Ben Bernanke was doing at the Fed and not what Janet Yellen is doing at the Fed, that uh, that uh, that can have real problems too. So we do need to think about how we if we do exactly that. In fact, the paper I presented at the conference was actually directed at saying how do we get the use of discretion, the use of rules, just right. I think but that, you didn't answer you my question. <laughs> Will we have these discussions if we have a McKesney Martin, William G. Miller, Jay Powell type running the Fed? Well, first of all, let's not talk about <clears throat> G. William Miller. He was a disaster. But fair, McKesney fair. Martin was actually very capable, and I think Jay Powell is very capable. Uh, so I think that that uh, uh, it, it, that. Uh, my view is I think Jay will do a terrific job. I think that Janet would be even better because Janet really uh, uh, has shown great performance and is a terrific, terrific economist. But Jay is extremely capable. I've interacted with him a lot over time. Uh, he's extremely sensible. Mm-hmm. He understands how to listen. He also understands how to actually use the staff. Uh, in the way okay. that it should be used. So I think a, Hillback should be a very good choice. This has been a great briefing. Rick Michigan is a Columbia, and I'll say it again, folks. He did a wonderful Econ 101 macro text a couple years ago, which is an act of God because it's a little less mathy than some of them and a lot more policy-driven. <laughs> uh, Rick Michigan is at uh, Football Power, yes, Columbia, six and one. Columbia University. Let's turn now to a friend of the show, Austin Goolsby, who was for a long time the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama White House. He's now back at the Booth School for Business at the University of Chicago. He joins us now as we continue to look at the prospects for tax reform. We'll talk a little bit about the prospects for, for further growth uh, as well. Professor Goolsby, great to have you with us. And I want to just get you to react, first of all, to the delay uh, that we learned about yesterday, that there's going to be another day until we get this legislation from the House Ways and Means Committee. And, and maybe just react, if you could, to the timetable for all of this happening. Give us your sense of, of, of how possible it is to get some sort of comprehensive reform done here over these uh, next few months. Well, that's a big, how fast it's going to happen is, is perhaps the key question. I would disagree a little with the premise about comprehensive tax reform, though I don't think that's an accurate description. I think what they're, what they're seeing is what's been the reality that they, that they did not want to admit all along, which is they're not trying, they're not even remotely trying to do a 1986 style comprehensive thing. They're just going to try to figure out a way to cut some taxes. And I think the delay, you know, you, you, you may disagree with me, but I think the delay of one day yeah. might harbor delays of more days because ultimately they've agreed that they are going to increase the deficit by $1.5 trillion in doing this. But they've described in the president's framework, what he calls his framework, more than five trillion of tax cuts. So to get to the one point five number, they have to raise three and a half trillion of well, taxes. Austin, and I don't think they'll be able to do it. We have too short a time with you today, but just one more question, and we'll let you go on and get you on for a longer time. Again, I get huge response to the idea that they would play around with the 401k funding. People were just baffled. Um, 
by by that. With, within these limits, what is the constraint of the federal deficit? Is that a valid constraint to the legislative process forward? I think it's only a political constraint. Certainly in the short run, the debt capacity of the U.S. government is vastly in excess of where we are. So I don't think that that's a market constraint. I do think that there are a fair number of Republicans who so put their credibility on the line attacking President Obama for the stimulus that for them already to be calling for a tax cut twice as large as the stimulus, that's about the limit of how far they're willing to go. Because of the uh, services at the New York Stock Exchange, Austin, it's too short a visit with you. We'd like to get you on again, and particularly to talk to to you about the Cubs fan, (laughs) the laureate Richard Thaler. We we haven't had that uh, uh, moment with you yet, but we'd like to get Austin Goolsby on again. Professor Goolsby, thank you so much. With Chicago... Of course, Ken Griffith at Citadel, Citadel donating $150 million to the institution. Austin will get his fair share, David, I think, as, as well. We thank Some Austin new stationary business cards, new, yeah. I think, maybe. <laughs> uh, things I could say. No, probably uh, get a copy of Samuelson, 48. Um, Austin Goolsby, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Guru's got lots of intelligent questions on technology for the author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. But I've just got one question for Scott Galloway of New York University. On Amazon, I mean, you're living the, the benefits of Amazon. $28 for your book, The Four. They're walking out the door at $18.30 prime, free one-day shipping. That's a discount of 35%. Is Amazon your friend or enemy when you're flogging a book? I think the answer is yes. Uh, they're they're so dominant in the book business that I think they've reshaped it. What's interesting about the book business, though, is that Amazon has arguably done less damage or less disruption to the book business than a lot of the categories it's gone into after that. So they're you know they're the biggest player in books, but at the same time as an author, they're very good at figuring out how to track people who maybe have checked out your book. You'll start getting haunted by ads for the four. If you, I have, I have. You know, they'll start stalking you. So they're. I almost went to Scott Galloway last night for Halloween. Halloween, yeah. yeah. That's all haunted. Oh God, that's ugly. That's all haunted. <laughs> that is a terrifying costume, and trust me, it doesn't work anywhere. Um, doesn't get you into restaurants, and, and doesn't yeah. doesn't, get, doesn't help anywhere. So, yeah, Amazon. Amazon, look, it dominant, I would say, on the whole, good for authors. Okay. David Girl, why don't you start on the tech frenzy? I, as, as people know, I think it's just a bunch of baloney. <laughs> but David, try to be more intelligent than I can be. What did we learn uh, yesterday? You had three representatives from uh, three of the big four uh, on Capitol Hill yesterday testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, a subcommittee of that committee. Today they move over to the House, and we'll see a repeat of what we saw uh, yesterday. When it comes to what these companies did and are doing to change their behaviors, what did we learn? So what you, the new sort of non-denial denial or non-apology apology is the term we must do better. Uh-huh. And the key, it's not a crisis itself that damages a firm. It's your response to the crisis. Martha Stewart, Martha Stewart didn't go to jail for insider trading. She went to jail for denying it, specifically obstruction of justice. And the only thing you really have to remember in crisis management is to overcorrect or at least be perceived as overcorrecting. And I would argue these guys have yet to really put out the necessary 
statement, and that's, that is the following. The CEO needs to stand in front of America, Congress, consumer shareholders and say, I'm personally committing to, to making sure this never happens again. And they haven't done that. How difficult is that from a technical perspective? How much sympathy do you have for these companies who say to do the kind of screening or the kind of vigilance, have the kind of vigilance that would be required, is technically uh, an impossibility? Uh, I have almost no sympathy because we're not talking about the realm of the possible. We're talking about the realm of the profitable. And that is, if the New York Times can protect us from the weaponization of their platform on $90 million in cash flow, Facebook can figure it out with $12 billion. Facebook could hire 10,000 people to screen content. They could spend a half a billion dollars a year on artificial intelligence to help those 10 people identify and flag that content. And it would dent their free cash flow 5 or 10%. When big tech tells you something is impossible, that's Latin for we would be less profitable if we did this. This is, look, a better business model for a country club is to have no lifeguard of the pool. <laughs> and, and that's what they've done. But for some reason, they've co-opted us into believing it's impossible. That's just ridiculous. Why are they the police of all this? They're just a conduit. They're just a distribution system, aren't they? That's a, a fair point, and that's the argument that they're a quote-unquote platform. This all they're comes a down platform. to are they a platform or are they media? I would argue, I would argue the part of the fourth estate. You create content, you spend a billion dollars on original content, you run ads uh, against fair. that content. Boom! You're should they be regulated by the FCC? I mean, back to you know, I remember in Douglas Brinkley's wonderful one volume on Walter Cronkite, the whole yep. radio regulation when Cronkite was nobody in Kansas City. I don't see why they shouldn't be subject to the same scrutiny the rest of media is. Media, I looked up the definition last night. Media is a medium that is used to influence and reach people. Facebook defines what it is to be a media company, and they still haven't admitted they're a media company. They keep saying that they're a platform. This would be like McDonald's serving 80% of their hamburgers are fake, and we get encephalitis and make bad decisions, and McDonald's defense would be, we're not a fast food restaurant, we're a fast food platform. Facebook defines what it is to be a media company, and should, and should live up to the, to the responsibilities of being part of the fourth estate. How much self-awareness do these companies have? I always find it funny when I go out to San Francisco or Silicon Valley, the, the rhetoric that you hear, uh, people toiling away to change the world. They have these broad, big ambitions. Uh, and I wonder if their sense of, of, of place in the United States, in the world, uh, in society generally, uh, is somehow askew. So, and this is going to sound cynical, but I believe what Peter Drucker said, that organizations are here to create a middle class and for-profit entities, which these companies are, are primarily there to create economic security for their employees and their shareholders, not in that order. And the notion that they're there to connect the world or save the planet or do no evil, I think it's, is more marketing than it is reality. And every quarter, people, analysts don't ask them if they're saving the world or connecting the earth. They ask them, what were your earnings? And I think they are very focused on profitability, as they should be. I, don't, I think they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be. The problem is we've personified these companies, and we think they're almost Christ-like. We've given them the mother of all hall passes because we've decided— Who's that, we? Uh, it's society. I think we look at these companies differently. Even, even these questions, it, if they should be subject to the same regulation as radio, why wouldn't they? Why, why wouldn't these companies be subject? Let me— if. If a company is weaponized by Russia and other media firms were not, then isn't the obvious an answer or logic that okay. they should endure more regulation? Well, let's, let's take all the clicks that fit to print. I mean, do the analog of Facebook to the New York Times. Do the analog of Facebook to the New York Times. I don't understand. Fa how is Facebook? Well, it's because, you know, I'm, I'm a student. I'm raising my <laughs> Sir, Professor Galloway, yeah. compare the New York Times then to Facebook, the, the pressures that the Sulzbergs have yeah. versus Zuckerberg. 
Okay. So I was on the board of the New York Times for a couple of years, and I, the, in my second board meeting, and this might be inside baseball, I suggested we shut off Google. I think it's ridiculous. The stupidest thing we've done in old media was buy into this lie that information wants to be free. Your boss doesn't think information wants to be free, and there's a reason why this firm is still fabulously successful. But we at the New York Times let Google show up with a dump truck and start taking cash from us, crawling our data, slicing it up, serving it against ads that they could monetize at 10x what we could monetize, and debased our gorgeous content. We took Birkin bags and distributed them through Walmart. Information wants to be free, one of the stupidest things we've ever bought into. We're talking with Scott Galloway of New York University. His book, The Four, I have a rave review on it, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. It's incredibly refreshing, uh, given the other business books that are out there. And what's refreshing about you, Scott, is you've been on both sides of the fence as J.C. Panay migrates down under $3 per share. What was it like advising, consulting, and being on the board of Edward Bauer? Old line, what, Seattle retailer? Yeah, Seattle retailer, uh, kind of an iconic brand in the nor- in the Northwest. I was yeah. put on late by the hedge funds who wanted to kind of muscle it into um, reorganization. So, you know, it, it, I was there when it was kind of near the end. But what's interesting is uh, it got bought again in another bot, and it's about to do kind of Chapter 12. I think it's about to go bankrupt again. But you're seeing brands everywhere under attack. The era of the, what I would refer to as the brand era, the sun has passed midday on traditional kind of brand, brand building and shareholder value through, through a marginal product with great mm-hmm. associations. That's over. How much is what we're seeing here a, a governance uh, issue? Of course, Uber is an outlier example of problems with the, with the board of directors. But with these big companies, are they adequately governed by folks who know business and <laughs> know about uh, what historically business has been and stood for? So in media companies, media has, and this is not just true of Facebook and Google, but all media companies have talked themselves, or most of them, into believing that they're special and that the founders have some sort of special insight that they need protection from shareholders and the owners. So they typically have two classes of stock. And that's true of um, it's true of the New York Times Company. I believe it's true of News Corp. And I know it's true of Google and Facebook. Now, it's also true of Snap. You have a 27-year-old. When you buy a share in Snap, you have no rights. You have no say. You have no ability to put anyone on the board. And it's run by a 27-year-old whose company is now worth more than Viacom and the New York Times and combined. It's like, what could go wrong, right? So corporate governance, there isn't a lot of corporate governance here. The board of directors of these companies aren't really a board. They're an advisory board because they don't get to fire the CEO and they don't don't get to buy or sell the company, which at the end of the day is really the only two things that matters for a board. How do we get to that point? I look at the sort of social side of things and our willingness or to be complicit to give away data, to give away information because it's convenient or easy. And I look at it on the other side of the ledger with uh, with governance and management and just the way these companies are, are run. How did we we become, we society, again, talking about it with, with a capital S, become so comfortable with that happening? So we were talking about this during the break. I believe that we no longer worship at the altar of character and kindness, but uh, the altar of innovators and shareholder value. And we believe that these people are good for society, good people. I think they're incredibly savvy. They're incredibly impressive. And there's a political bend here. I believe they wrap themselves in a pink, a rainbow, or a neon blue blanket because progressives, as a general rule, are perceived as being very nice and weak. It's a great foil for, for a company that acts like Darth Vader and, and Ayn Rand during the day. Wrap yourself in a progressive blanket and you're not seen as threatening. Look at Microsoft. They were perceived as more conservative. And conservatives are largely seen as being smart but mean. 
So the foil, the illusionist trick is to come off as very, very progressive and liberal and caring about other people because then during the day you can be Darth Vader. But give the parallel then, and you do this a bit in the book, The Four, of these giants in John D. Rockefeller, literally the first business book I ever read mm-hmm. was Ida Tarbell. To this day, I can't tell you why I pulled it off the shelf at Fairport High School a million years ago. How do they relate to John D. Rockefeller? Well, you mean in terms of concentration? Concentration sure. and power. Oh, come on, power. It's simply power. So, so I, I would argue that at 90% share of search. Exactly. And search is now a bigger business than the entire advertising uh, business by dollar volume of any country except in the U.S. And you have one company that controls 90 plus percent of it. It's Google. So I would argue, I would bet Google has more power and concentration of market share than the railroads or Ma Bell did when they were broken. Are we waiting for Ida Tarble to come along to break up (laughs) Google? Well, our, uh, the equi- analog to that, and the only regulator in the world now who I would describe whose testicles have descended is Marguerite Vestager. She's the <laughs> one that's going after them. And it's because war, the war against big tech is going to break out where all the other big conflicts have broken out. It's going to break out in Europe, Tom, because we register a lot of benefit here mm-hmm. and a lot of downside. In Europe, they register all of the downside and a fraction right. of the upside. I, I'll agree with that analysis, but then how do you respond to the natural Lockean individualistic, we're American, we're going to do it ourselves attitude that pushes against Mr. Vestager in, in Europe. I mean, we push against that theme, don't we? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think uh, people say what could get in the way of these guys. And people, I, I believe the only thing that's standing between any of them and a trillion dollars in market cap right now is Washington or Brussels. And it's definitely more likely going to be Brussels. Uh, but I don't, you know, at some point, Tom, one of these n- Northern European nations is going to say, is the model of letting these guys in worked out better, or is the Chinese model where you let them in just long enough to steal their IP and then prop up a local competitor and capture all the value, do the Chinese have it wrong? Who are the dumb ones here? So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a small European nation actually outright ban one or more of these companies. I think the worm has turned against big tech. I've had occasion to talk to, to Margaret Vesquier in, in Washington, and she's kind of seen, at least as I perceive it, as a curiosity there in terms of where she's coming from, what she's trying to do. And I think she's probably the subject of a lot of ire uh, there, of course, in the, the, the Bay Area uh, as well. What accounts for the cultural difference there between where Brussels is and where Washington is? And are there any indications that our sense of competition is going to change or evolve as a result of what we saw in this election or what we see in terms of the might or, or, or size of, of these companies. There's a, there's a big difference. And it's a, in the U.S., it's hard to deny. We, we register a great deal of benefit from these firms. Amazon is the largest recruiter from my class. You know, the real estate prices in California or Northern California have skyrocketed because mm-hmm. of the wealth created there. They, they're sources of national pride. They're, you know, they, they are ours. It's a huge source. They create competition, economic growth. The, all the concerns around privacy, job, job destruction, weaponization by foreign adversaries are a real conversation. We're having it. But in Europe, there aren't a lot of university buildings or hospital wings named after Facebook or Google billionaires. So the question oh. is... If, if, if I don't get the upside and I get all the downside, that stiffens the regulators' backbones in Europe. Uh, David, just to point things out, and I, you know, I, I've read most of Galloway's tome here. I've read the first part, <laughs> the Old Testament, but not the New. Very good. Did I know, David Gura, that Amazon has 541,000 employees? I don't believe I knew that. Is, is there a point at which, Scott, you, you push against a company becoming too big? In other words, we can talk about how regulation might curb the growth or the influence of a company. But 
just to, I guess it's a principle of physics here. Can it get too big? Can a company get too sizable? Can a Google or an Amazon become too big? I don't know if they become too big. They're definitely not too big. Keep in mind, uh, I mean, Tom talked about the half a million employees at um, Amazon. The more interesting fact is that Facebook is now, I think, the fourth most valuable company in the world, and they do it with 22,000 employees. And if you take these companies combined, it's the population of the Lower East Side with the GDP of India. Yeah. So GDP of India spread across the Lower East Side. The outs, the, it's not can they become too big, is it can they become too powerful? And that's a, that's a yeah. legitimate question. Uh, you do your Jan Morris imitation uh, at the back end of the book. <laughs> and you say the four in you, what should you do about this moment? And this is a profoundly American issue, which is the depeopling of America to the cities. And this has to do with our yeah. American politics. Get to a city. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Two-thirds of economic value is going to be created in the city. When you're in a city, you bump into people who are better or you know, are the best in the world. It's, when you play tennis with someone who's better than you, you get better. So rally with someone who's great and the best in the world are gravitating to cities because that's where the economic value is. So get to a city and mm -hmm. bump off and rally with better tennis players. 25-year-old in Brooklyn, they can't afford to live large like David Gurra. Which <laughs> city should they move to? Where's Galloway's favorite city right now? Oh, gosh, Tom. If you can afford to, you want to live in New York or uh, San Francisco because it's a very interesting Yeah, but come time. on. They can't. I mean, no, you know, it's outrageous. Oh, there's a Give me a secondary city here. i got to make some news and sell Sirius XM Channel 119 somewhere. Miami, Austin, Miami, A Nashville. small city like Miami. Miami's fantastic. Nashville. Um, Queens. Uh, there's, there's, there's a ton <laughs> of great cities. Uh, St. Louis, Wash U, the, probably the fastest. or the. the there we go. We'll University. leave it there. Washington Wash University, yeah. St. St. Louis. There you go. Riley from St. Louis. We say good morning to you, Scott Galloway. <laughs> the book is The Four. Even Riley from St. Louis is going to read it. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.